The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, September 18th, 2022. I have a pilot for you. His name is Rios, and he'll be in touch. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter, with the 11th Digest of the second volume, covering Monday, September 12th, through Friday, September 16th, 2022. Marvel Saga Monday, Part 6 A return to Marvel Saga with Issue 6, The Official History of the Marvel Universe, edited by Danny Fingeroff and written and researched by Peter Sanderson. The cover art for this issue is by Brent Anderson and Joe Sinnott, giving us uh, scenes with... X-Men X-Factor Origins, Cyclops and Iceman being victims of mutant hatred, as the two are ready to be lynched by a mob, plus the origins of the Puppet Master and Alicia, and we see on the cover the Puppet Master controlling the Fantastic Four, plus the origin of Iron Man, which is on the back cover as you see three different images leading to the gray Iron Man suit, plus the origins of Odin and Asgard, and you get to see on the back cover as well, Odin in battle with Surtur. Marvel Saga Issue 6 pulls its history from X-Men Issues 44 through 46, Fantastic Four number 8, Marvel Team-Up 6, Journey into Mystery 86 and 97, Thor 349, Annual 5 and Annual 11, Tales to Astonish 37, and Tales of Suspense 39. And along with new artwork on the splash page by Al Milgram, which has been a thing for most issues so far, for the first time in this particular issue, the saga has new art within its story. So on page 20, the saga details the nine worlds of Asgard, and it's a sequence drawn by Walt Simonson. So Walt was on Thor um, at this point, and Thor was up to issue 367, which is right when Simonson would stop drawing the book, but still would be its writer. And apparently this particular artwork would be used later somewhere in the Thor title, although I haven't confirmed if that's actually the case. So if you are a Walt Simonson Thor completist, you're going to need this issue just for that one page. So Marvel Saga Book 6, entitled Love, Hate, and Sacrifice. We start the first eight pages with the origin of Iceman and how he met Cyclops and Professor X. When members of Bobby's hometown find out that he's a mutant, they attack his home in a scene that's oddly reminiscent of the way the police um, uh, staked out Bobby's home in the second X-Men movie. The particular panels that they pull from this origin story certainly hit home with a lot of the mutant hysteria, and you can feel its parallels to racism. Someone being called a mutant lover, just the fact that they're going to lynch Cyclops and and Iceman. Uh, We do get a part of this origin where Bobby's father stands up to the mob, making me think that I seem to recall in the 90s that Bobby's father wasn't as comfortable with 
mutants in general. But that might also be my memory tricking me. And it might just be a holdover from the X-Men movie, X-Men 2, but so I don't remember. But um, Bobby's father was in a few of those 90s X-Men comics. So somewhere all this is making sense. So eventually Cyclops tries to help Bobby against the mob. Of course, there's an inevitable fight between the two characters. And we get a panel talking about power limits and how both of them deplete their powers while they're in a fight. And they are really young and inexperienced, but it kind of makes sense too, right? If their their powers, I guess, shouldn't be um, infinite, even if some of the X-Men are a mega level, like I feel like it should be self-generating and maybe at some point it gets depleted, you know, not quite like Aquaman being out of water for 60 minutes, you know, but they're, they're, having some limits feels right when I read this little sequence. So, of course, Bobby decides to join Professor X and and join with Cyclops. And Charles has a line that he gives to Cyclops saying, Today we say goodbye to the X-Man and begin the era of the X-Men. Now, we already know by this point that Jean Grey is also waiting in the wings. So it's not like Scott is the only X-Men member at this point. But now, you know, one of the fun things about the Marvel saga is like, hey, that would be a great untold story, or that would be a great way for Marvel to dip into its history. I think they should have a series entitled X-Man, not about Nate Gray, though, but about, about a very young Scott Summers having a kind of Batman Beyond relationship with Charles Xavier back at home as the two scour the world for potential mutants or characters that are superpowered but turn out not to be mutants or even people who are trying to pretend that they are mutants, right? I think that could be really fun as a limited series or a miniseries. And then, of course, you could have Jean Grey in the background helping out because at this point she is in secret. So X-Man, the first X-Man or something like that. I'd be all for it. I really would. Um, okay, so then we turn to the Fantastic Four. We get a, a fight between Johnny Storm and Thing on page eight, where Torch uses a Roman candle punch. <laughs> Made me think, do we ever see that again? That could be fun. Uh, pages 10 through 12, it's the origin of Puppet Master and his step- stepdaughter Alicia, all with Gil Kane artwork from the Marvel Team Up 6 issue. Um, I am much more familiar with Gil Kane at DC than I am at Marvel, but as soon as I see it, I'm like, yes, of course that's Gil Kane. So now in this origin, lots to unpack, um, lots of fun things about the Marvel saga, and, you know, I'm sure some of these things were touched on in other Marvel comics, but, I, you know, I haven't read them. So in the origin of the Puppet Master, we learn that Philip Masters goes to Transia, where he discovers the clay that he uses. Now, Transia is another one of those Marvel hotspots where you could have a story connecting several characters at one point in time, or maybe they crisscross in a specific era, um, because he finds this clay near Wondagore Mountain. So no doubt the clay was infected by the presence of Cathan. And I, I'm assuming 
this is information that has been part of his origin, right? And the saga is just pulling all this information. I can't imagine that it's new for the saga. But anyway, that makes me think, okay, you could connect Puppet Master to the High Evolutionary and Scarlet Witch and everybody else that is involved with Transia and Wondergore Mountain. So in this origin, Philip has a friend named Jacob Reese who is the real father of Alicia Masters, at least according to, you know, 1986. And Philip was jealous of Jacob and uh, jealous of Jacob's marriage to Marcia, who was Alicia's mother. That jealousy leads to Philip beating on Jacob, causing Jacob to fall into the vat of clay, causing the explosion that takes out the eyesight of Alicia. So then eventually Philip marries... Um, Marcia, and that's why he becomes the stepfather of Alicia. Now, two things. Alicia has the same origin as Daredevil because her eyes were struck by hot, vaporized clay, blinding her, but increasing some of her other senses, even though they're not quite superhuman like they are for Daredevil. So I have to imagine that's why she's such a good sculptor. And that's why later on in this sequence, she senses Invisible Girl, even though Invisible Girl is uh, invisible. But she even says, I can hear her heartbeat. So has she always been human? Has there ever been a point where they've played with Alicia having a little bit more of a power? Because, it, again, she's Daredevil before Daredevil, because the uh, Daredevil number one hadn't come out yet by the time Fantastic Four 8 was released. So... The second thing is, if Jacob fell into the vat of clay, maybe his essence is somehow trapped inside that clay. And that's why Philip Master's powers work, because there's some kind of connection between Wondergore Mountain, the energies of Cathan, there's this disembodied spirit that could be in the clay. I just think all this could be fun to tap into if they haven't already. Pages 13 through 16, that's where we get... Puppet Master against the Thing and the Fantastic Four. This is where Alicia can sense Invisible Girl. In fact, Puppet Master even says that Alicia and Susan Storm look alike, making me think, oh, you know, in these early stories, Thing has a thing, no pun intended, for Sue. Even in the Heroes Reborn issues that I'm reading, he likes Sue, so is it any wonder he fell for Alicia if she looks like Sue? And then, even though Reed finds a way to turn the thing back to Ben Grimm, once he sees that Alicia likes him, or at least recognizes him, quote-unquote, as the thing, this is where he develops a mental block on his transformations. That's why he, every time Reed comes up with some kind of antidote to... to um, turn him back to Ben Grimm, he always then just goes back to the thing again. Because in his mind, he feels um, that is the only way Alicia really is going to care for him. Now, at this time, all of this information was brought to light in Thing 23, which was released in 1985, right before the saga began. So this is another way that the saga is using older information with newer information. And then, by the end, Puppet Master falls out of a window. His death feels very much like the ending to some kind of Twilight Zone horror magazine. And we learn here at the end here, the saga says that it is Johnny and Alicia 
that are currently, as of 1986, in love with one another, but I'm fairly certain this leads to Fantastic Four 300, and then eventually we find out it's not Alicia at all, but a scroll. So at this point, at least, the saga, well, the Marvel Universe Fantastic Four stories um, still has a ways to go before revealing the true nature of Johnny and Alicia's um, relationship. Page 17 through 27 is all Thor kicking off with an adventure by a thief known as Arthur, Arthur Zarko, who steals a bomb and then uh, goes back to his own century, which is the 23rd century. He's known as the Tomorrow Man. He has a time cabinet. <laughs> I've heard of a time bubble, a time sphere, even a time platform. I never heard of a time cabinet, so that's cool. And for Thor to find his own way to the future, he has to call on Odin for the first time in this early Marvel age. This leads to a recounting by the saga of the origins of Odin and Asgard and its denizens. We get to see the first Jack Kirby appearance of Surtur and Ymir from Journey into Mystery 97. Mostly it's all Simonson stuff from his run in the early 80s. And we get to see a lot of the origin stories of Odin and um, Loki. Um, probably the biggest takeaway of all of this is that Odin's mother, known as Bestia, is a frost giantess. So Odin is half frost giant. What? And I'm like, wait a minute. Why? Is that a thing when he's dealing with Loki, who was also a, part, a member of the Frost Giants? Like, why are they always fighting? I mean, Odin has a legacy, has a history. And in fact, even in the actual Odin myth, his mother is Bestla. Instead of Bestia, it's Bestla. And again, she's a giantist. And they even say here that the whole reason why Odin probably went after Ymir is because of some kind of odd family thing, you know? So, at least in the stuff that I've read, there's there hasn't been that connection between Odin and the Frost Giants, but, you know, maybe it, maybe it has happened somewhere else. Page 27 through 28, we get a very short Ant-Man adventure against the Protector, a character that has showed up in the most recent... As of 2022, first issue of Ant-Man, a miniseries written by Al Ewing. So there's a really great connection across the decades. And then the rest of the issue begins the origin of Iron Man. It's interesting to note that Stark's early weapon designs were based on the idea of miniaturizing. So it was all transistorized weaponry, miniaturized weapons of vast power. Now, obviously, that gets discarded over time. And it just turns into munitions and weapons in general. But you can see how this whole concept of miniaturization uh, speaks to the idea of creating a suit, right? So the first suit is created by Tony and Professor Ho Yinsen, which is reflected in the 2008 movie with some obvious changes. But this is where that miniaturized weaponry comes into play because the idea is that the suit is powerful because of all this gadgetry that can fit inside, yet it still packs a punch, right? Um, I like that notion. I like that notion. And it comes up quite a lot in these early adventures. 
I also never thought of the suit as an iron lung, but duh, it's so obvious when you read the origin story. And I like the dialogue when they are creating the suit um, because it's, it's evocative of Frankenstein. So if Hulk is Jekyll and Hyde, I guess Stan Lee is making Iron Man Frankenstein. There's a line here about what a creature we could create. And in many ways, creating the suit is a way to keep a way to keep Tony Stark alive, right? I mean, he is in essence trying to create life for himself. Um, and they talk about, you know, all of the various parts of the suit that will work together to mimic bodily functions, to mimic bodily movements, you know, all of the various smaller parts working together as a whole. And they say here, the iron frame must duplicate every action of the human body. Plus the way that the Iron Man suit lays on the table while he's waiting for the power to fully juice him up. I mean, it's just constant Frankenstein imagery, which I love, you know, that's kind of an interesting notion. And then we do leave this issue on a cliffhanger, which will uh, finish the Iron Man origin in issue number seven. There you go. Just a few takeaways from this issue. Some things that I learned, some untold stories that could be fun, and some connections to some modern storytelling. We will be back in two more digests to take a look at Marvel Saga issue seven. TV Tuesday, Cobra Kai, Season 5. Season 5 of Cobra Kai was released on September 9th. I watched all 10 episodes on September 10th as I was dog-sitting between my parents and my sister's house. Uh, I had, in anticipation of Season 5, I did go back and watch all four seasons again, which means I know I've seen Season 4 twice. I... I forget where I jumped in. I think when I finally started watching Cobra Kai, uh, there were at least three seasons, but I know I've seen the first three seasons at least twice through. May This may be my third time through. I don't remember. Even so, it made the journey to season five uh, stronger, and it made watching season five all the better. I love this show. I really like season five. And if they never did another Cobra Kai episode again, I would be happy. I would really be happy. I think they they managed to wrap up a lot of the things that have been going on since season one. There are a number of bookends between season one and season five that just make it feel like um, they could end it here and that's it. I think there's already discussion of a season six, but in my mind, if this was it, I'd be happy. And I could go back and watch and rewatch this show and still get some new things here and there. Season five is so good. It is so, so good. The show is completely over the top and it knows that. It knows that it's over the top. It knows that these characters live in a world where, yes, it is about fighting, but there's no, there's never really like a lot of blood, and the injuries aren't things that aren't things that they can't necessarily come back from. There never seems to be any kind of death anywhere, right? So 
some of the things that happen in season five, they tend to push those boundaries or the rules of the of the world. So it made for some moments where I gasped and I got emotional and I was in shock. Ugh. I love the show. I really do love this show. It absolutely helps that I love the original movie series, which I've already talked about before. And um, the creators and the and the cast, they're just really smart about making a show that knows what it is, celebrates what it is. It's part superhero show. It's part karate. It's part karate kid. It's part Romeo and Juliet. It's part West Side Story. I mean, it's... It just says everything I love about certain geek um, properties. And I find that I am constantly watching clips on YouTube, especially back from the uh, first three movies, because I want to see where the parallels come in, not only with dialogue, not only with characters that get resurrected, but certain fighting styles. There are things that happen in some of the fights between some of the main characters or um, certain um, moves that individual characters use. And then you go back to the original movies and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, they they used those movies, those moves back then. Um, One of the joys of watching clips on YouTube, especially from Cobra Kai itself, is going through the comments and seeing how... The comments are all super positive. There is so much love for this series. It's amazing. It's quite amazing. I know that there are people out there that are detractors, that don't want to watch the show. But when you have YouTube of all places and you look at some of these comments and you rarely see something that is outright negative, right? It's people celebrating a moment, a a fight scene, a funny scene between characters and I'm learning some things. There are some things from the comments that I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't think of that. Or I didn't recognize that from the movies, you know. Now, to be fair, the first part of season five, perhaps the first four episodes, are um, s- slow, I guess you could say. Um, I-, I see why they're doing what they're doing. It has a lot to do with Miguel's- Miguel looking for his father and... A lot of that family coming together, Miguel, Robbie, Miguel's mom, um, Johnny, you know, that that family unit has to come together before they can really move on to the back half of this season. And that ultimately is what those first four episodes are about. Now, skimming through all 10 episodes again in anticipation of this segment, I can see where... Much like Karate Kid 3, there's a slow burn that happens until there's kind of like an explosion of conflict. That is what this season is doing. So those first four episodes are necessary. There's a build to it. Um, A lot of it has to do with uh, Daniel basically being and acting on his own, which got him into trouble in the third movie anyway. And then, because everybody's off doing their own thing, and then they all come together. So there is a purpose to it, even if they were a little slow. But once you get to five, and especially six, seven, and eight, oh my God, so good, so good. And the last two episodes, just amazing. The last episode itself, I'm not going to go into major detail, but the last episode 
really just decides to take off and just say, this is what we're going to do in a way that perhaps the series hasn't done before. Um, I, 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 this is a show that I want to talk about episode to episode, but I really find that I have, um, much more fun talking to other people about this show. So there's a number of friends that have watched it and we just constantly, you know, there was a a point, this one friend, her and I talked about the show and we would bounce ideas off of each other based on what we've seen and what we might think might happen in season six. But also it's like this person really liked this character in this scene and I really like this character in this episode and we're able to share in that. So the discussion, the larger discussion, is something I really enjoy. So I'm not really going to go in depth here. Just some things to look out for in season five if you haven't seen it already. First of all, Chosen, Johnny, their relationship, great. Terry Silver, just a bastard. Um, The series never forgets its roots. Um, There are a ton of of emotional moments, especially with the LaRusso family. Every member seems to have their moment in this season, even if it's something small or you have to kind of like, especially in a fight, when you see maybe like, for instance, for instance, Miguel doesn't get a lot of spotlight in the last remaining episodes, but he is so important in a lot of the major fights because you go, oh, look how good he is now and look how he always tends to show up in the right moments and how no one can, it seems like no one seems to be able to best him you know um so the way the uh, first season characters are maturing miguel robbie hawk and then of course sam dimitri tori kyler even uh and then you get the new generation anthony devon lee and kenny i mean everybody the adults and the and the kids gets their moments and um chosen is so good in this season he is like Miyagi unleashed. You know, if you if you drop some of the moral the you know the honor and the morals that Miyagi had, you get chosen when he fights. But he's but he's doing it with honor and he's doing it because he's so badass. I love Amanda's journey in this. Tori gets a journey. We get the comeback of Stingray. Um, the return of several characters from the movies. The mid-season fight between Danny and uh, Dan, yeah, Danny and Terry is amazing. Um, Crease's part in all of this, I was totally floored a number of times by what they did with Crease. And as I mentioned, you know, all of the slow build and the machinations of Terry Silver, it just gets bigger and bigger until it needs to boil over. And go in a way that Terry didn't expect, go in a way that Daniel doesn't expect, and goes in a way that the audience doesn't expect. I love that the final battle is witnessed by just about every character. And um, even if Daniel is not the strongest or cleanest fighter, he has knowledge from everyone. He has knowledge from Miyagi. He has knowledge from Kreese and Terry. He has knowledge from Johnny, which means more knowledge from Kreese. He has knowledge from Chosen. He has knowledge about the origins of the fighting style that Terry and Kreese have. So 
he again is not the pop the most polished um but like Miyagi, he is able to pull on all these different things, and that's why he is, quote-unquote, the Karate Kid, you know? And that's why the series really does end um, with him, because this whole season has been about his own journey. So, I love the show. I love it. I just, I constantly think about it. I've, I've been watching interviews, and I've been watching blooper reels, and I've been watching moments from season five or moments from the entire series. I still get chills at certain moments, and I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, should they develop this? How do they develop it more? Obviously, obviously there is a leftover. I think I talked about um, the next Karate Kid movie in a previous digest. I can't remember. But there are some still some things that are left over that we could touch on for um, a season six. Now, some of the connections to the movies, like if they bring certain characters back and connect them to the characters we already know, it's going to start to feel a little forced now that we're five episodes in. But I'm fairly certain they're going to do it in a way that we're going to love because I, I haven't felt any missteps in this entire series and I trust them at this point, you know, and even if it doesn't work out, I'm not going to be mean about it or upset because there's, there've been so many good things and, um, it's just a good show. It's a good show. If you take it for what it is. And if you're a fan of the original movies, uh, I could sit here for another 15 minutes and talk about it, but I'm not. Um, yeah. Cobra Kai season five. If you've seen it, talk to me about it because I just, I want to hear what, especially if you're someone who, if you've seen the original movies when you were a kid um, or or a little bit after, what parallels did you make and what parallels are you making? Because that is the fun of this show. The fun of this show is talking about this show. Cobra Kai Season 5. Badass. I used to be an acrobat. A trapeze artist in the circus. Until one night during a show. I don't know who did it or why, but he had a hook for a hand. Wednesday Comics Wednesday, Part 4. Taking a look at the Dead Man strip in Wednesday Comics. Dead Man, the Dearly Departed Detective is the story. And it is by Dave Bullock on art. Co-plotting with Vinton Hewick, who also did the script. Letters by Jared Fletcher, colors by Dave Stewart, and Dead Man is a character created by Arnold Drake and Carmine Infantino, who had his first appearance in 1967. So as of this recording, the character is 55 years old. The setup for this story is Dead Man comes across a murder scene with uh, a man who has his heart ripped out. And on a bed is a woman, also dead, and she has a strange insignia on her forehead. And then Dead Man comes across uh, a man outside of the apartment building, or outside of the crime scene, also trying to attack another woman, and he's wearing a ring with the insignia. So Dead Man goes into that man's body and realizes that it's, uh, uh, it's not going to go the way it usually goes with his powers. So he spirals down to this hell dimension and is fighting a big bad and demons 
finds other women down in this dimension as spirits and realizes that things aren't exactly the way he thought they were. And by the end of the story, he uh, learns from the women that they are actually trying to revive Neron, the demon known as Neron, and the uh, killer on Earth is another rival demon that is just trying to stop these women so that Neron doesn't rise again. It's almost like, a, as it's described in one of the strips, it's almost like a chess match between these two demons. Um, as is the case with some of the other strips, this affords me a chance to get to know some of these creators. So uh, David Bullock and Vinton Hewick, uh, I am not familiar with, and so did a little research, both of them coming from the world of animation. Uh, Dave Bullock is a storyboard artist on a number of different projects. Star Wars The Clone Wars, Kim Possible, Spider-Man The Animated Series, some Batman Adventures, Superman Animated Series, Batman Beyond, uh, Transformers Prime, etc., etc., etc. Has some comic book work as well. A couple issues of Ghost from Dark Horse. uh, A lot of cover art, especially for Teen Titans Go!, some other short stories here and there, and did a story with Darwin Cook in the Justice League New Frontier special in 2008. And Dave Bullock and uh, Darwin Cook are colleagues and had worked together for a number of years. And once you see David Bullock's artwork, you you can kind of see the inspiration there from Cook. Vinton Hewick is the same thing, uh, supervising director of the Avengers Earth... Earth's Mightiest Hero series, storyboard artist as well on a number of series, and directed a bunch of episodes, most recently for Harley Quinn, and also Young Justice, Transformers, Robots in Disguise, The Batman, Transformers Prime, etc., etc., etc. The story was described by Dave Bullock as, uh, and Deadman was described as, the character has a unique combination of horror, mystery, and superhero elements that make it stand apart from your run-of-the-mill super jocks. That's the term that he uses for superheroes, super jocks. It's a little, little weird. So when you read this story and you realize the background and animation that these creators have, you can feel that on the page. So if you are someone who likes Darwin Cook, you're going to like this strip because it has uh, elements of cook artwork in it and it also has in a few of the pages um, you can feel that there is some animation experience there now it doesn't look like animated work it still looks like comic book art which I really appreciated uh, because sometimes um, you can read a comic and you can just feel like "Mm, this artwork it feels like I'm watching or I'm just going through the frames of an animated series, right? You can just, it just has that feel to it, um, where it almost looks like the the panels are a little bit frozen in time. This is not the case. This, this artwork really utilizes the pages. There are a number of pages, uh, uses the format of Wednesday Comics well. There are a number of pages I really like, and when I say that it it has the feel of animation, 
um, there's some nice movement in some of the pages, in some of the sequential work. Uh, and certainly the character designs has that feel as well. Um, but I really did feel like I was reading a comic, which is good. So I'll just go through uh, some of the pages here. Uh, page one, you get background on the character. You obviously get the setup for the plot of the story. In page two, uh, one of the character, one of the dead man characters known as Ramakushna, she makes herself known and tries to stop dead man from investigating what is happening and tells him that he doesn't quite know the full story. But of course, he goes his own way and then realizes he gets into trouble. Page three, or, or the third strip, um, is probably my favorite of all 12 pages. Um, it's dead man spiraling to this other plane of existence, and there's something almost Alfred Hitchcockian about it, and uh, the colors are great, the textures are great, the layout is great. I, I really like this page. Page four onward, uh, all the way through to like page 10, is basically Dead Man in this other dimension. And we meet the big bad demon known as Kallik. Um, he looks a little like Rogel Czar from the Bendis Superman stories. Um, and Dead Man has form again, which obviously isn't a good thing because he battles some demons and he gets injured and he's constantly falling. So the story dips a little bit here. Uh, it lags a bit because he, it's basically just Dead Man going up against this demon or minions of this demon. Um, page six works nicely as a midway point, though. Because by the end of page six, we are given a little more information, new information, that turns the story in another direction when we meet the souls of the women that have been murdered, that, uh, and they are also in this dimension, even though we don't quite realize what's going to happen yet. Um, page seven lays out their side of the story in a, more or less in a splash page. It's basically one image with just a few panels it really utilizes the page well. It almost came across one of those like Dante Inferno illustrations, although not as grand, but I appreciated this page. Um, page eight, we have a new plan going up against Kallak. Uh, and then by the time we get to page 10, which is, I wrote here, probably the best example of Bullock's storyboard visuals in comic book form. There's great panel-to-panel -panel sequentials, and there's great um, just movement as Dead Man battles some demons, so I really like that. Um, actually, it's page 11 where this we get the revelation of what's going on, and here we learn that these women are demons themselves or witches or something, and they're trying to raise Neron in the DC Universe, um, even though we don't ever see that character. So obviously they're they're no good, right? Um, that's why they were being killed up on Earth, because this demon Kalik was trying to stop them, and we learn that on page twelve. Ramakrishna comes back and she says, uh, you know, basically that dead man interrupted this chess match between these two demons, and now he has to be the one to find other women who are trying to resurrect Neron, and you know he just realizes his his condition and that he'll never 
find eternal rest. And he's kind of okay with that because he wants to help people on Earth. And he decides to go and, you know, that's going to be his new mission for um, uh, for something that happens after this story. I mean, we don't ever get a follow-up to that, obviously, but it's a new sort of status quo for him. So it's good. It's enjoyable. It's pleasant to look at. And even though the story lags a bit in the middle there, I quite enjoy it. enjoyed it. There was one bit of dialogue I'm going to take them to task for, and that's in the fourth page where, uh, so Dead Man has his form and he's falling and he has to try to save himself using his acrobatic skills. And he says here, I may not be as graceful as those Cirque de Soleil sissies, but he does have, uh, you know, a lot of skills. And I was like, oh, that's bad. You know, I know Dead Man, like that intro clip that I played is meant to come across as kind of, um, from a different era and uh, comes across a little brusque and a little, you know, manly man, you know, but I didn't, I didn't appreciate that bit of dialogue there, you know, not for 2009 or whenever, yeah, for 2009 when this story took place, Um, especially because if you've ever been to Cirque du Soleil, they are not sissies whatsoever. I mean, they have strength and power and some of the things I've seen them do, woo. That they are just amazing. So, yeah, wasn't a fan of that dialogue. Still a good story, uh, uh, worthy of the Wednesday comics format. And as I'm ranking things, you know, Commandy is still up there as number one. Batman and Deadman are, I guess they could be tied. They're almost like neck and neck, right? Because the Batman story I liked and um, the art was really good. The coloring was really great. Uh, the story was, was, um, you know, had that noirish quality to it, but dipped in and out. This artwork in Dead Man is really a lot of fun. And I thought they used the broadsheet format really well on a number of pages, but some of the story gets bogged down in the middle because it's, it's, they kind of just ran out of things to do other than the story just becoming, um, Con- conflict between dead man and the demons and then in last place would be superman so uh you know not a bad placement for this story at all next up in three digests we go to green lantern by kurt Busick, joe quinones with pat brousseau before we wrap up this wednesday segment here are your recommendations for september 14th you have two magazines from tomorrow's publishing Alter Ego 177, Back Issue 138, both $10.95. Alter Ego is all about Don Perlin, the artist for Werewolf by Night, The Defenders, Ghost Rider, Moon Knight, and Back Issue 138 is all about classic heroes in the Bronze Age. Comics such as Lone Ranger and Tonto, Flash Gordon, Popeye, Zorro, Lady Rawhide, Son of Tomahawk, etc., etc., from Drawn in Quarterly, we have The Ducks Hardcover by Kate Beaton, $39.95, apparently her first full-length graphic narrative. With the singular goal of paying off her student loans, Katie heads out west to take advantage of Alberta's oil rush. Katie encounters the harsh reality of life in the oil sands, where trauma is an everyday occurrence yet is never discussed. And then from Living the Line, we have the Plaza graphic novel for $32. 
This is an oversized English edition by neo-manga artist Yokoyama Yuichi and Kanzunari Hattori. Inspired by Carnival in Brazil, Plaza offers a maniacal extravaganza of marching, dancing, leaping, firing, cheering, smashing, and exploding over the course of 225 eye and eardrum confounding pages. So give that a look. All right, there you go. Those are your recommendations for September 14th. Drawing Funny is the podcast where we're talking tunes with some sketchy characters in the comics industry and fandom. I'm Lynn Workman, your host for this pandemic-inspired podcast. Join the comics conversation with some of my fellow Mid-South Cartoonist Association's Memphis Art Mafia, or folks like Atomica and the hostage creator, Sal Abenanti. Glad to do it. I mean, the exposure was nice. It wasn't like the next day I couldn't walk down the street. You know, I don't know if I would do it again right away. Jenny Zero, co-creator and party monster supreme, Dave Dwanch. Look, a little foreplay. I need to eat. I need to hydrate. <laughs> but we'll get to it. Athena Voltaire, creator, Steve Bryant. Tell me of the tales beyond my, my lands. <laughs> and fangirl Wednesday's Nikki Workman. Yeah, I'm not waiting up to 3 o'clock in the morning for a new episode to drop. I'm old. I need sleep. And I have a job. Episodes can be found at drawingfunny.com or most anywhere you like to download podcasts. Stay tuned and keep drawing funny. Guys, what do you, what do you want me to tell you? I've said it a thousand times. No, I'm not Alex Ross. And then they still don't believe me. Today in history, September 15th, Colonel Gil Coronado on National Hispanic Heritage Month. Hispanic Heritage Month, which is the effort I was involved in, was born out of a desire to share with others our Hispanic heritage, our accomplishments, and contributions, and many success stories generated within the Hispanic community. I was a high school dropout. I had no qualifications for any civilian job. And uh, patriotism runs very, very strong in the barrio. I was fortunate enough to get involved in the political circle and meet some friends, the Hispanic Caucus. And I approached them with the uh, thought of, let's extend it to a, from a week to a month. And I would ask that each and every one of you continue to do some good things for our country. Remember, what is good for Hispanics is good for America because Hispanics are good Americans. If you saw on Twitter, if you saw on Facebook, I can no longer say that I am part of the COVID-free club. It's been, you know, two and a half years of working in, in and around Philadelphia and traveling back and forth, going to a few family functions, and yet... Um, And yet it took uh, a journey from someone going to New York and then bringing it back here. And I am finally COVID positive. So uh, last week, Thursday night, uh, September 8th, 
Um, I was recording the Legion Project episode 37. And when you listen to that episode, at least when I was listening to that episode again as I was editing it, I could hear midway through, I was starting to get affected. I could feel it, obviously, while I was recording, but I could hear it. I could hear my throat closing up. I could hear me getting stuffy, but I could also hear my thought processes were slowing down, so my conversation was slowing down. You're not really going to be able to hear some of that because of the way I edit those episodes. But that's when I knew something was wrong. So then I took a test on Friday. I was negative, but then took another test on Sunday, Sunday the 11th, and I was positive. And, you know, it's a weekend. It's been a mild case. I am vaccinated. I, I got the booster. I was I meant to get the second booster, but I thought I was going to wait because of my age. But um, uh, I did not get that second booster. So anyway, it's a, it's a mild case of it. A lot of it has to do with stuffiness. There were there was a fever. I did not get the coughing, but boy, did I sneeze a lot. And my ribs hurt and um, focus is, is up and down some days better than others. Um, I don't feel like I can't do anything. I'm just, you know, in quarantine cause that's what you're supposed to do. Um, I initially thought it was allergies because it really came on quickly. I took a shower in anticipating, in anticipation of recording that Thursday night. And after that shower, maybe because of the heat of the shower, something, it just, I could feel something was not right. Then I did that recording. Friday rolled around. I wasn't too good. Saturday, um, I was a little, uh, very uneven, but I was still doing things and I was dog sitting, as I said. And that's when I watched Cobra Kai. And then by Sunday, I took the test and um, I was positive. But again, I didn't have... Um, any kind of major coughing, it all felt like a sinus. It all felt like a fever. Now, the beginning of this week was kind of rough. I was in bed a lot trying to sleep. Um, I was uh, constantly getting the sweats. It felt like I had a fever, taking Tylenol, drinking fluids. Every time I ate, I felt not so good, which is why I thought it was more... Um, felt more like a really bad flu more than anything because when I try to eat when I have a fever it doesn't you know it doesn't work I don't I don't enjoy that so what did I write here COVID day four if I was getting paid by the sneeze I'd be a happy man um COVID day five runny nose not so bad it's been replaced by constant sweating um that was September 13th and then this would be COVID day 8, September 16th. More or less symptom-free outside of that post-fever icky taste. Um, and then I wrote a new wrinkle today, a slight bout of vertigo. Yeah, I got vertigo, which was probably due to the fact that I was very congested in my sinuses, in my ears. You can I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I can feel it. I feel my throat's kind of scratchy. And I'm still recovering from um, all of that sneezing and just, you know, being in a feverish state. So, um, yeah, you know, that sucks. Two and a half years, managed to hold out. And um, it was because somebody was at a wedding and they probably knew they shouldn't have been at that wedding. 
And, um, I mean, I guess I, can, I guess I can say, you know, my sister runs a flower shop, so she did a wedding. She did the flowers for this wedding in New York, and somebody, uh, you know, maybe one or more people at that wedding, because it was a big family event, they decided to go, even though they were sick, and they probably knew they were sick. And by Tuesday after um, that that whole weekend, they called my sister and said, yeah, we have COVID. My sister had COVID. Um, I guess in the days before she found out, that's when I got affected. And then by that Thursday, which seems to be right, you know, they say two to five days or whatever, um, the timeline seems to be there. So even if I wasn't necessarily around my sister for a long time, it could have been because who knows, you know, maybe she, maybe the, her dog, um, uh, you know, cause they have a lot of close contact. And then when I watch the dog or I play with the dog, you know, maybe, maybe he transferred it to me. Who knows? I don't know. All I know is I did get it. It's a weekend. It sucks. Um, and even though it's a mild case, uh, we'll just have to see how it rolls from here. So, uh, I think I would have been better knowing that I got, got it from traveling back and forth to Philly because, you know, there are so many variables, but this one was one of those variables that um, people should have just been smart about, you know, the people at that wedding. Because my other sister got sick from a wedding as well, a wedding and a wedding reception, because someone at that reception also knew they were sick. And they were at work, left work early because they didn't feel good, still went to the wedding, left the wedding early, but had already infected a whole bunch of people and infected my sister and her husband, I believe. So again, it's carelessness, right? It's carelessness of people and people who are just disrespectful and um, not being honest with what's going on. You know, if you feel that way, why are you rolling up into a place that has a whole bunch of people? I don't give a shit if it's a family event or not. This is the idiocy of people who think that they can just do whatever the fuck they want, you know, because it's like, no, this is how it affects other people. I wasn't even involved and it traveled from New York to Pennsylvania, you know, and the people who it came from weren't vaccinated, you know, so it's it's just disrespectful and it's just, you know, the shittiest of shitty uh, people who just don't care about humanity, you know, so you can take that for what it is. So yeah, there I am, week in, um, I'll keep you posted because uh, we'll see how the rest of the week goes. All right, that's it for this digest. You can send me an email, peter at thedailyrios.com. Go visit the website, thedailyrios.com. Go visit the Daily Rios Instagram. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Find me on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. If I'm not there, let me know. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 580 for Sunday, September 18th, 2022. Talk to you soon. What? What the CDC Jenner told me. <laughs>